Today's reading is taken from the book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 1 through to 216. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, when he saw what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. He said, The Lord, the Lord roars from Zion, and thunders from Jerusalem, and pastures of the shepherds dry up, and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. The three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire upon the house of Hazel that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Bethedine. The people of Akram will go into exile to Ker, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Eden. I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekon till the last of the Philistines is dead, says the sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood, I will send fire upon the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortress. Says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because he pursued his brother with a sword, stifling all compassion, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked, I will send fire upon Timon that will consume the fortresses of Bazaar. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Ammon, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses, amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath, because he burned as if, as if to lime the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire upon Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in a great tumult amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed, I will send fire upon Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath. They sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as upon the dust of the ground, and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl, and so profane my holy name. They lie down before every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God they drink wine as fines. 
I destroyed the Amorite before them, though he was tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt, and I led you for forty years in the desert to give you the land of the Amorites. I also raised up prophets from among your sons and Nazarites from among your young men. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape, the strong will not muster their strength, and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground, the fleet-footed soldier will not get away, and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked on that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, let me add my welcome after that cheerful reading. Uh, great to see you. And uh, let's pray together as we begin to look at the book of Amos. Our loving Heavenly Father, you are our creator and our maker and you know what we need. And it is sometimes not what we assume. And Father, to come to the Bible and choose a reading this morning, we would never choose the book of Amos. But you've put this book here because we need to hear it for our good. So please help us understand it rightly. Would your spirit help us apply it to ourselves rightly so that we may honor you the great and living God, as we should. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know if you go to the zoo, what's the animals you most look forward to? It's the big things, probably, isn't it? No one gets wildly excited by the spiders. Let's go look at the spiders in the zoo or some small little insignificant monkey. You want the big things. You want elephants and giraffes. And for myself, you want the big cats, lions and tigers. That's what you want. Those are the impressive things to go and see, especially if you get there at feeding time and you see the keeper sort of throw over half a horse into the, uh, the lion enclosure and they, you know, they're fairly docile, aren't they, in a zoo? So they sort of, they pad up or maybe sort of just gently sort of um, pad up to the thing. They look at you contemptuously, bored. More humans come to observe my activities. And then there's a sort of, <laughs> And the teeth come out and they go, and this thing gets absolutely devoured. And you think, whoa, magnificent, magnificent creatures. But you'd think slightly differently if one of the keepers had been a bit slack and left the enclosure open. And uh, there's you arranging a nice photo of friends and family in front of the enclosure. Stand there, I can just about see one of the lions in the background. And then from the right, entering the picture is a genuine lion free, in front of you. And he shakes his mane and roars. At that point, admiration probably isn't the most dominant emotion in your being. You don't think, magnificent creature, at that moment in time. At that moment in time, you think, run. Or do you run? Because they're quite quick. Uh, 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 him, why don't you go and sort him out? You look young and fit, young man, off you go, and you you don't mess with a roaring lion. I found some very bizarre footage on the internet, unsurprising that is, but um, this was particularly of an incident about five years ago. It was genuinely a keeper in a zoo in China, left the enclosure open. 
And so someone had their mobile phone and filmed as this lion attacked and killed his keeper. Now that's pretty bizarre, isn't it? Why would you film that on your mobile phone? At the same time, would you get involved? Would you? Don't worry, Mr. Keeper, I'll come and rescue you from... You'd... I mean, I don't know why you'd stand there and film it, but you'd get away. Because a lion is not a creature to be messed with. And that is the point here as we begin this book of Amos. The Lord reveals himself as a roaring lion. Chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord roars from Zion. We get there later on in the book, but we see chapter 3, verse 8. The lion has roared, the sovereign Lord has spoken. He is a roaring lion. Now that is a deeply uncomfortable image. Because the picture is of God as a lion, roaring. What's most uncomfortable about it here in Amos is, he's roaring at his people. Those who know him those who previously he's rescued. And the rule is, unless you change your ways, I will destroy you. Let me be honest with you. The book of Amos is nine chapters of the Lord threatening judgment and five verses of hope at the end, just so you know. Um, so don't miss the last week, will you? The uh, A number have said over the last few weeks, oh, I've been great looking at the book of Proverbs, really enjoyed the book of Proverbs, so practical, so helpful, you know, in really sort of gritty in real life. I don't think many come and look at the book of Amos and say, oh, it's really enjoyable as a read. But we need it. Because you come to this book and it certainly stops us from uh, shrinking God down to a convenient advice giver. Well, that's interesting advice. That'll help me with my life a little bit this week. You can't do that with Amos. You have to step back and think, golly, he is an awesome God, and I must do as he says. So it is an uncomfortable read. It's a book written to shake God's people out of their complacency. The Lord will not be taken for granted. There's a point at which his patience runs out, we'll see in the book. He is not a domestic cat who purrs in your lap, who is very pleased when you come along and spend time with him. Oh, that's nice. You've come to spend time with me. Let me just stroke your leg now and purr. He's a lion. He's not domesticated. We cannot tame him. We must do as he says. Now let's just get in and get some of the backdrop to uh, to what's going on in the book. Chapter 1, verse 1 tells us, uh, these are the words of Amos, he's a shepherd, It's uh, and we get some dates from the kings there. So we know it's around about 760 BC, 760 BC, around that, that uh, Amos is preaching. He's a shepherd from Tekoa. Tekoa is a small town about 10 miles south of um, Jerusalem. So Amos is from the wrong country. If you know your Bible history, you know that uh, God rescued a people, put them in a, a, the promised land. But in about the year, a few years um, uh, earlier to this, about 922 BC, there was civil war and God's people separated. So essentially you get 10 tribes in the north, that's Israel. And Amos is preaching in Israel. Two tribes are broken off there in the south, Judah. 
So big Israel in the north, small Judah in the south. Jerusalem, the center where God has his throne, as it was, is in the south. So Amos is from the wrong country. He's going from the south to preach in the north. He's probably got the wrong accent. And over the years, that was 922, the civil war, we're about now, as I say, about 760, there's been a bit of conflict. They've fought one another at times. At times they've been allies, but it's an awkward relationship between the two. Not one of great friendship. Yeah, so when you get to the New Testament, the good Samaritan, he's from the north. You wouldn't expect him to be kind to the man just outside Jerusalem. There's enmity between these two nations. No love lost. So Amos is, a, Amos is a shepherd from the south. He's going to preach in the north. And he's going to denounce them, really. Attack their immorality. Attack especially their lack of justice. The enormous gulf between the rich and the poor and how the, the rich exploit the poor. But he's going to go for them. It's very strong language. And would they listen? Well, again, it's all backdrop. But uh, Israel at the time, why would they listen? Because in around 760 BC, they're going great. We'll read it in the letter, particularly uh, in the prophecy, particularly chapter 6. At this time, Israel is very wealthy, really affluent. And militarily, they've done very well. The, the king, uh, Jeroboam, Jeroboam the second, actually, but uh, he's had some great military victories. He's expanded the borders of the nation. So this is a, a successful, affluent, satisfied country. Every year on the king's birthday, there'd be massive military parades through the capital with a vast uh, military parading their weapons and the soldiers all stepping and everyone cheering the king. And everyone's quite content and pleased with their wealth and affluence. And so that's Israel in the north. And so a shepherd is going to tell them how to live their lives from the south. This doesn't quite work, but it's something like a shepherd coming from I don't know, 10 miles south of Dublin in a rural area, bankrupt Dublin, known as a staunch Irish Republican, coming to London and saying, you don't know how to run your economy and you're immoral. And the elite of London would look upon this fool and say, Dublin, rural, bankrupt, fool, be gone. They wouldn't give the bloke much time. So Amos is not given a sort of promising job description by the Lord to go to this very successful, prosperous, affluent, content nation and try to denounce them. God's word would undoubtedly be mocked and ignored. And so not too different, I guess, from today. As we listen to Amos in relatively still, wonderfully successful militarily, we've got no great threats on our doorstep, prosperous London, self-satisfied in many ways. And what is the response to a reading such as this? What is that? Just ignored. So not that hard to hear this, in a sense, as they did back then. Let me just make uh, two things. To, uh, this is a long reading which introduces the book, but to two, say two things. Uh, the first is this. The Lord holds the nations to account. And then we're secondly, we get to it. The Lord holds his people to account. The first is the bulk of it. Chapter 1, verse 3 to chapter 2, verse 3. The Lord holds the nations to account. 
Okay, uh, the prophecy really starts at chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, we're told the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. That's technically where he placed his throne on earth, in the city of Jerusalem, representatively. But he's declaring here he is not confined to one place. The Lord is the sovereign ruler of the world. He wants all to recognize his authority. And so initially then, you get six nations. Judgment on Israel's neighbors is how it's summed up. But six nations around Israel and indeed Judah. that weren't believers. They were pagan nations, no knowledge of the living God. But he addresses them. Okay, two little things to say. First thing, there's judgment for their inhumanity. Let me just work through it because these are I hope you realize as they were were read, wicked crimes. Let me just run through the six quickly. Judgment for their inhumanity. So first, verses 3 to 5, there's Damascus uh, in Syria. What's their issue? Inhumane war crimes. What does she do? Verse 3, threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. Now, a few years earlier, uh, Hazael, king of Syria, had invaded Gilead, this place in Israel, and apparently had threshed the people. Now, to thresh, as a technical, it's an agricultural term. When you threshed grain, you took heavy wooden sledges with iron uh, imprinted, uh, embedded into it. You'd weight down the sledges and pull them across your grain back and forth to crack it open. To do that to prisoners of war. weight down heavy sledges and just pull until their flesh is ripped open. It's a wicked war crime. I don't know if that's literal, but something like that. And so we have our modern equivalent of systematic rape of prisoners in a war scene. Or use of uh, chemical weapons, apparently now, in modern Syria. Inhumane war crimes. That's Damascus. Or verses 6 to 8, there's Gaza. Gaza of the Philistines. What's the problem there? Well, uh, verse 6, she took captive whole communities and sold them. Slave trading is the problem there. Horrible then, horrible now. Whole communities taken. You can imagine the soldiers rounding up people, the mother screaming, take me, all right, take me, just leave the children, they're so young. Bring them all. Whole communities taken, sold into slavery. Horrible. Verses 9 and 10, Tyre uh, in Lebanon. Again, whole communities sold off, but seemingly worse here because, verse 9, they disregarded a treaty of brotherhood. They'd broken some pact that had been made. Seems worse than even Gaza. Uh, Verses 11 and 12, Edom. Of course, descendants of the chosen people are Edom descended from Esau, the brother of Israel or Jacob. They should have known better. What's the problem there? Well, it's anger and violence against a brother nation. Again, a sort of modern equivalent. You vaguely think of the conflict in Rwanda, you know, Hutus and Tutsis, these groups that have grown up for generations alongside one another, all of a sudden turning. And for personal gain, horrific injustice and slaughter, just to expand a bit of territory. Uh, Verses 13 to 15, Ammon. What did they do? Oh, it gets worse. Sickening atrocity. Verse 13, 
they ripped open the pregnant women in order to extend borders. That is a brutal self-interested game, isn't it? Pregnant women can't run away. So what do you do? Let's just take two lives in one, mother and baby, rip them open, and they bleed to death. Why would you do such a thing? Oh, to extend our borders. Just a bit more land. Horrific. Moab, uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Less obvious, but there, what is Moab's sin? He burned, as if to lime, the bones of Edom's king. What's he saying there? Well, it's not obvious, but there's, I guess sacrilege is what this is. You could read in 2 Kings chapter 3 of what takes place. But it seems as if uh, Ammon not only killed, um, excuse me, uh, Edom not only uh, killed uh, uh, the king, but then forced the people to watch the prince, the heir to the throne, be burned in front of them. Hence, bones burned to dust. So here we go, we've destroyed your nation, we've killed you, we've killed your king, and just so you know what sort of people we are, we're going to burn in front of you, alive, your prince, and you can watch him scream. And that'll be you if you rebel against us. Why is Amos listing these crimes against humanity? I mean, inhumane activity. He is wanting to rouse the anger of those listening in Israel. Do you know what's taken place, Israel, he says? These, some of you know this. This was in your history, done to your people in Gilead and other places, this and this. And of course, the crowd there listening to this is horrific. Justice, justice, justice. Yes, we want the Lord to judge these things. Awful, wicked. That's not right. Now, there's something of that, I hope which still resides in all of us, when you hear of the wicked war crimes that take place. It isn't right to be confronted with those things. The problem is we see so much, too much TV, but if you immerse yourself in something, you watch a, a long documentary about use of chemical weapons. It's appalling. You go to one of the Holocaust museums in the world. It's appalling when for several hours you're confronted with war crimes in your face. There's something surely in us which says, that's not right. And we want something to be done. Well, the good news, if I put it in this way, the good news of Amos chapter 1 and 2 is we don't live in an amoral universe. The Lord looks upon these things and says, I will judge them. I will judge them. And within us, there's a relief, I think, at that. I read one man's quote fairly recently. Uh, Vince Gilligan, not many will know who he is. He's the creator of a TV show, Breaking Bad. And I take it that if you've not all here would have seen that or indeed watched that sort of program. So a program about a chemistry teacher who knows he's got a short amount of time to live, so turns to a life of crime becomes a drug dealer in order to provide for his family when he's gone. He's a good man who goes bad deliberately. It's interesting conceptually. Uh, I wouldn't say it's necessarily recommended. Not all would enjoy it. But the one thing that's deliberate about the program is it says actions have moral consequences. Here's him talking about the philosophy 
uh, behind the TV show. If religion is a reaction of man and nothing more, it seems that it represents a human desire for wrongdoers to be punished. I hate the idea of Idi Amin living in Saudi Arabia for the last 25 years of his life. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement or justice or something. This has now become my philosophy, and he quotes, I want to believe there's a heaven, but I cannot not believe there's a hell. Do you see what he's saying? He's not a Christian, he's not a believer of any kind as far as I can tell. He says, it'd be nice if there's a heaven, that'd be good. But I can't get through this world if there's not a hell. Because I need to know that there will be justice. I need to know there'll be judgment. And that the wicked dictators, EDR means, don't just commit atrocities and then go and live in exile for a few years. Still in luxury, still in their hotels, until they die. That's not right. It's a striking way of putting it, isn't it? So the Lord will judge for the inhumanity of the nations and individuals within them. So there's judgment for their inhumanity. And then briefly on, on this, these six, there's judgment. The judgment is for rejecting conscience. Second little thing here. These pagan nations, they're not punished for rejecting the Lord in precise terms. They didn't have a Bible. They didn't have the Ten Commandments or the Mosaic Law. Yet in every case, for three sins or for four, the pagan nations are being punished because of their sin. The word technically, pesha, in the Hebrew, it, it, it's a willful transgression. It's a, I know I'm rebelling against an authority. That's what sin means here. But they didn't have a Bible. They haven't got the law. What are they rebelling against? Well, what is clear is God holds these nations responsible for their barbarous treatment of others. Not because they've broken a law written, but because they've gone against a, the God-given conscience instilled in all of us. That's what they've broken. That's their sin. I guess the New Testament makes it even clearer when the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16 of Romans, that Gentiles are judged on the basis of what they know, their consciences bearing witness, their thoughts accusing. You don't need to have read the Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount or anything. The Bible is clear that all of us have a God-given conscience instilled within us. And to rebel against that, that is sufficient reason for the Lord to judge us. This phrase, for three sins, even four, the Lord is not hasty. This is a rhetorical sense of, this is sinfulness to the brim. They've had their chance, but they've just gone beyond the pale here. And they'll be judged, once it's for rejecting what they should know. But that's true for horrific crimes. It's true in a lesser sense as well. The, uh, the, the 20th century uh, minister, writer, uh, Francis Schaeffer has a very helpful little illustration. It's quite well known, I think, uh, by some. But he puts it this way. Imagine when every baby in the world is born. Thought experiment, okay, not true, obviously. Every baby in the world is born. They have an invisible tape recorder around their neck. He wrote this about 50 years ago, so 
MP3 player, we might say, uh, but an invisible recording device around their neck. And all it does is it records verbal moral judgments. So whenever the, whenever the person growing up says, oh, they're so horrible, oh, they're so selfish, just records that, clicks on, clicks off. Oh, they're, they're so mean to me, clicks on, clicks off. Oh, they're such a liar, clicks on, clicks off. It just records every moral judgment the person makes throughout their lifetime. Many times a day, hundreds of times a week, thousands of times a year, hundreds of thousands of times in a lifetime. Just records them all. He says, imagine the scene changes and it's the, the last day and everyone stands and has to come before the Lord and is assessed, judged. And some say, well, who are you to judge me? I didn't know you. I never heard about Jesus. I never read the Bible. I never heard about the Sermon on the Mount. On what basis can you judge me? And the Lord says, well, okay, just for this once, I'll put aside my perfect standard of righteousness and I'll assess you on, well, on this. And just takes off the invisible tape recorder and just presses play. And the person hears their comments. Selfish person. Never thinks of others. Is a liar. He's click on, click off. And the person starts to feel very uncomfortable. And after a while, the Lord says, I'm just going to judge you according to that basis. And at that point, everyone is silent. Because none of us lives by the standards we apply to other people. We know what's right and what's wrong. We don't do it. That's what's going on here in Amos. They know what's right. The Lord holds the nations to account. Secondly, more briefly, the Lord holds his people to account. No doubt there's approval at this point. All these sins are down. So the people say, yes, horrible, horrific, horrific, terrible, quite right. And then the Lord goes on, uh, Amos goes on in his denunciation, first to Judah. So they, they're different. We're not in Israel yet, where Amos is actually preaching, but the, the smaller, smaller nation of Judah, they, they had the law. So verses 4 and 5, no doubt there's still approval at this point. What have they done? Well, verse 4, for three sins of Judah, even for four, they've rejected the law of the Lord. Yes, that's right. They've turned away. They've not listened to what God says. It gets a bit more serious now. Because then finally in verse 6, Amos turns to Israel. So what has he done here? Well, it is... It's different for us, but it's, I guess it's a little bit like this for the first audience. For us sitting in a Christian church in the 21st century, it's a little bit as if Amos has just gone round different groups and he's slammed the politicians for being out of touch and dishonest and only concerned about their own jobs and a number of... And then he attacks the bankers, they're just money-obsessed, not no interest in the good of society and some smile, yes... Yes, keep going, Amos. And then he attacks the press, their despicable phone-hacking practices, immorality rampant, and be worse, quite right, terrible people. And then he gets around the BBC. They're so pious in their denunciation of others, so self-righteous, and look, they couldn't even care less while sexual harassment and abuse is going on in their own building. Turned a blind eye. Oh, then they discover it and say, well, don't put, don't release that documentary. It'll ruin the Christmas schedules. So self-righteous you are. And everyone says, yes, they're all terrible. And then Amos finally comes round to the church and says, and as for you, you're worse than all of them. 
And so Israel would have been feeling a little bit uncomfortable at this point. What's going on? Well, two things briefly. There's judgment for their immorality and judgment for ignoring grace. The first judgment for their immorality, much of the rest of the book is on this, so we'll go through it very quickly. But verses 6 to 8. Verse 6, what are they doing? They're driving people into slavery for the price of a pair of sandals. Pathetic. Imagine verse 6. Oh, I'll pay you back tomorrow. I only owe you whatever it is, a pair of sandals. I owe you £10. No. A contract is a contract is a contract. You owe me. You haven't paid. Get out. I own you. You're my slave. Oh, come on. Verse 7, they're trampling the poor into the dust. Well, the only use for those who are on the poverty line is just to sting them for massive loan repayments. Let's just take advantage of them. Verse 7, father and son use the same girl. How is that? They're sleeping with a servant in the house? I, I don't know, but they're sleeping with the same woman. We don't know the details, but we do know what they're doing. They're profaning God's holy name. Far more concerned with the satisfaction of sex drive than the honoring of the Lord. Verse 8, these people lie, lie down beside the altar in garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine. I, well, the details, will leave them for another time. But essentially, these people are coming to church in stolen clothes and they're getting drunk. Brilliant. Brilliant. But in many ways, this trampling upon the poor and those who are without, Amos is saying, you're no different to the pagan nations around you. Personal ambition means you'll trample all over the poor to get what you want. But you're worse, Israel, because, verses 9 to 12, judgment will come because you've ignored God's grace. That's what's going on here. So verses 9 to 10, here's a list of what the Lord had done for the Israelites in the past. So verses, uh, the Amorites, of course, the, 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 the nations who opposed Israel. And look what the Lord has done. Again, the emphasis, I, I, the Lord, have done this for you. Verse 9, I destroyed the Amorite before them. They're as tall as the cedar, strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit. Verse 10, I brought you up out of slavery in Egypt. I led you for 40 years in the deserts. I have done everything for you. Do you remember your history? Do you remember? You were slaves in Egypt. You were helpless. No way you could escape. You were hopeless. No way you could generate a future. But I did everything for you. I rescued you. I sent plagues against the Egyptians. I gave you a land that is rich. I've given you affluence. I have been very kind and gracious to you where you were poor and hopeless and others were trampling you in the dust. That is how I have treated you. And now how do you treat those who are poor around you? Israel, if you understand how you've received grace from me, you would show it to others. And if you trample all over and abuse for self-gain, the poor, the dispossessed, it does reveal to me you never understood what I've done for you. You never understood that you were poor and hopeless and dispossessed. You don't understand grace if you treat people this way. Or to put it simply, Israel, you cannot say, we're right with God, 
if you're wrong with others. How you treat the poorest in your society reveals if you've understood how you're treated by me. And Israel, if there's no repentance, well, verses 13 to 16, the one who fought for you will fight against you. Verse 13, I will crush you. As a cart crushes when loaded with grain, the swift will not escape, the strong will muster their strength, the warrior will not save his life. I'll crush you. The one who fought for you will now fight against you. The swift, the strong, the brave, well done, your talent is hopeless against me. You think you're impressive, you are not. The bravest of you will flee away naked, verse 16. Just run. And of course, within 40 years of, his, of, um, excuse me, of Amos issuing this prophecy, within 40 years it all happened. Within 40 years, Israel destroyed the northern nation, the ten tribes, blown away by Assyria, destroyed. Let me finish with this. The Lord holds the nations to account. The Lord holds his people to account. But just let me put in place two pegs that we'll need to expand a lot more over the next few weeks. They're this. There's a difference and a similarity. First, these are only headlines, really. We need to expand them over the next few weeks. But first, there's a difference between us and them. The difference, I hope, is familiar. Amos is writing to a nation of nominal believers and says to them, unless you repent, you will be destroyed. You'll be invaded and cast out of your land. For us sat here today, we are not a nation of nominal believers who could get evicted from our land. There's an obvious difference. This side of the cross, God's people, in New Testament sense, are the church. So it is a message for a church. But also, this side of the cross, for many of us here who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have repented, and trusted that in Jesus Christ there is the one who perfectly lived a righteous life, who was never selfish, in personal ambition to the detriment of others, who was selfless in giving for the good of others. In him there's one who lived a perfect life, and in him there is one who was crushed for us. But of course there's a very real sense that when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this cup from me, it's because he's got something like verse 13 of chapter 2 in mind. I don't want to be crushed. I don't want the weight of God's wrath coming down upon me. So if you're a Christian here today, you have done what Amos asks. You have repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. And so there is a significant difference here. The Lord will never turn and fight against one who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key difference. And yet, the similarity is the challenge. And the challenge of Amos, I guess, is this. How can you credibly claim to have experienced the grace of God if you never demonstrate it in how you treat other people? The Lord is gracious so that we respond to him in lives of worship and in grace towards others, particularly those who need it most. So Amos will make us ask, if we don't show gracious kindness to others in need, 
have we understood the gospel? That he helped us in our deepest need. As we'll see in this book, the Lord's patience runs out. We don't presume upon him. We don't take him for granted. So we want to hold these things together. The Lord is a roaring lion. But as we sung earlier, in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's both the lion of Judah and the lamb that was slain. And so the plea of Amos would be, repent and place your trust in the one who was slain for you. And let him change you. Let him change you. The Lord is a roaring lion, and our only hope before him is to place our faith in Jesus Christ. And once we've done that, our lives will change. We will show grace to other people. But don't be fooled. Don't domesticate him. Don't think you can wander into his presence. Do you remember you only do so through the work of Jesus Christ? And let him change you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do rightly want to absorb these lessons of the book of Amos today and over the next few weeks. And help us to understand you rightly as the Almighty God, who is a holy one and rightly to be feared. You are a lion that roars against wicked injustice, against the sins of humanity, against the sins of your people. Would that send us to Jesus Christ, the perfect one, who lived a life that we could never live, of self-giving, who died a death of being crushed in our place? Would we be ever more glad to have him? And would we live lives, therefore, changed by him and his grace? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.